0: thanks everybody and welcome to the tracy kronzak episode of why it matters
1: damn it and you totally preempted me on that i was i know i got it my there. usual i got it
0: out there before you could call me stalwart <laughs> so, like a mule uh, thanks thanks for tuning in uh, we are really excited that we are now seeing why it matters on multiple channels and multiple frequencies. So uh, we would, we would uh, love to know uh, who is listening in and we can see that people are, so that's very exciting. But we'd love to know who you are. So uh, drop us a line, let us know. Um, this episode, we are uh, joined by uh, our guest, Tracy uh, and And what we realized is that we never Like, we just kind of kicked this off and started, we just hit, literally, we just hit record one day.
1: Yeah. So a year ago, by the way, this is, this is happening at an important time for us because why it matters as of September, 2021 is a year old. Wow. Yeah. Wait,
0: is that your birthday too?
1: No, my birthday is in August.
0: Oh, September. Yeah. I totally totally heard August when you said that. I do not look great right now, and I'm aware of that. Connor, you can feel free to just cut that out. Uh, No, no, we're leaving all of that in. Oh, great. Perfect. All right. Uh, Okay, so we have been recording now for a year. It has been so easy and so delightful to have amazing conversations with each other and with a stream of incredible guests and What we realized is we have never taken the time to actually say who we are. Uh, And so we're gonna do two episodes. We may join them, but we're gonna do two episodes where we are interviewing each other. So this is my turn to interview Tracy. Um, And so welcome to the Tracy Kronzak, Why It Matters episode.
1: I am going to set aside all of my profound discomfort. Uh, because I am used to being in control of this process from booking guests to introductions to formulating future topics. uh, and now none of that is in my control. So I am just going to set aside my profound discomfort with this answer. It's an illusion anyway, right? So No, it's real. Controls real. Okay, great. Great. Russia, yeah, controls real. (laughs) China, controls real. (laughs) All
0: right. Um full
1: name. Uh, wow, that's already getting into some fun stuff. So the full name that I legally have is Tracy Michelle Kronzak. Uh, Michelle's a family name, and the full name that I use is Tracy Isador Michelle Kronzak, uh, because when I was ordained in the Temple of Isis, I took on the name Tracy Isidore. And Isador huh. means uh, in adoration of the goddess Isis. In which language? It comes from the Greco-Roman tradition, actually, okay. uh, believe it or not. Uh, it's okay. not actually Kemetic Egyptian, which is where most of my practice lies.
0: Yeah. All right. Right out um, of the gate. <laughs> I know. Right. Like, yeah. Boom. Uh, so we, are, we, we just had your birthday, but what year? I'm. I'm just gonna. We're just gonna do age. Like what, right what
1: year right no. Born? Uh. All right. I. I never own this because my personal philosophy on being in IT and and most explicitly being in IT and not being a twenty something is like at some point your motivation for working in IT is somebody puts a framed picture of the glue factory on your desk and says <laughs> don't go here. Uh, But yeah, I was born in 73, so I have incredibly fond memories of the 1970s, like deeply ingrained, influenced by my family, which everybody in my family, the youngest people were five years older than me. So, you know, I could have fallen into like the early 80s stuff in music, but instead it was like, here, kid let me play as some Eagles. Let me play as some Paul Simon. Let me play as some Led Zeppelin. Let me play as some like Steve Miller band. Uh, I was hoping Steve
0: Miller band was going to hit. Oh, fly like an eagle, baby. Yeah, Fly like an
1: eagle. So, you know, it's, uh, that's, you know, so I have musical tastes that are about five years to 10 years older than me. uh, And it took me more time to get into punk new wave and early hip hop in the 80s and a lot of my peers because i was like what is this crap i'm 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 listening to steve miller what is this so you know awesome uh where where was that childhood childhood was centered in two places so true story my father worked for his entire life really for a government subsidiary company that built altimeters and built guidance systems for the navy Uh, and Navy missile systems. So uh, that that company was centered in New York all the way up until the mid seventies. And then the state of New Hampshire in a move that I think still has ramifications today in terms of why New Hampshire is a purple blue state instead of a red state, they incentivized white collar investments in the burgeoning areas of southern New Hampshire, by providing tax breaks to so all these companies to leave New York and and come up and like recenter on southern New Hampshire. So we moved from Middle Village, Queens, for those of you who know New York City, uh, all the way up to southern New Hampshire, which was pretty darn rural in that day. My town had maybe four thousand people in it total. Oh my gosh. Uh, So it was like
0: 4,000.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the other side, we had four acres of land. Um, so it, it kind of made for this idyllic childhood in a lot of ways where, you know, I just could go outside, (laughs) play on the land, uh, you know, ride my bike, do whatever. And we would visit my mother's family on Long Island almost like clockwork for the entirety of the summer. So I would go to Long Island, uh, for the summertime, I would return to Southern New Hampshire with a New York accent. And then over the course of a year, it would disappear and turn into sort of a North Boston, New England accent. And then I would go back down to New York with that. And it would sort of winnow its way out again over the summertime. Uh, and you know, all the sports family stuff was real. Like, you know, New England and New York pretty much hate each other in all arenas. So like, that was fun witnessing that, you know, at ball games and whatever else.
0: Do you follow sports? Like, did you, I did did your family, but you don't, but you don't now or.
1: I I, I like them. I ski, but like, I don't follow it anymore. Like I used to, like I got, like the big thing in my family, the family event was the NFL. Um, giants, Jets, Patriots. And I kind of got really disheartened with the NFL about five or 10 years ago, because lo and behold, there's a lot of sexual abuse and coverups uh, that were happening. And, and also a lot of misogyny baked into its approach and I was like, okay, great. Yay. Like saw the Giants win a few Super Bowls, saw the Pats win a few Super Bowls. I'm just letting this go. Uh, because it hurt too much to watch it, knowing that that was the backdrop of the sport. Now, beyond that, like I'll go to a San Francisco Giants ball game, like once every year, you know, it's about gotcha. it. when, when we had such things but never in, on TV. in the you before times, like, like, you don't oh, watch God, no. golf. No, I'm or... No, 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 yeah, no, okay. no, I, yes. I, watching golf, and you know, if it's like watch golf or or slowly pull your eye out, I'll take slowly pull your eye out, you know, <laughs> just thinking nine times.
0: Yes, the, time. the Ocho, but I think, I think that was from Dodgeball. Is that, is that what movie that was from? It might Ocho. have been.
1: I saw oh, that man. movie when it came out and never yeah. revisited it. It might if have, have dodge been. dodgeball
0: yeah. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball.
1: I love yeah, it. exactly. Uh,
0: all right, great. Um, childhood so we know where you were childhood was pretty idyllic um
1: there were some abuse what? things that Wait, were do happening have... to me as a child that i'm not going to get into but suffice to say in my adult life it's given me incredible insight into what ptsd looks like and how it shapes a person's perspectives and reactions to the world and because of that, it's also connected me in some really weird places. Like I make no secret of the fact that I'm sober. Um, you know, you overlap. Thank you. You overlap with a lot of vets and a lot of folks who have had traumatic childhoods and lives in that arena. And yeah, it's it's funny. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's one of those things where I'm grateful for that insight into the world because it has shaped my own sort of path for myself when it comes to what I think of as peace and serenity versus what I think the world tells us that should look like, you know.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, that, that tracks with who I know you to be a fundamentally authentic person (laughs) um much sometimes
1: to my own (laughs) uh
0: well that's that's the price of authenticity right so um okay um what are three key events that shaped you
1: oh man okay this was this was the one that you were like i'm gonna ask you this um (laughs) god what did i say i said there were three key events in my world i think uh Key event, number one, was coming out to my family. Uh, I had been brought up to believe. Now, to to contextualize this, my family is, on my mother's side, 100% Irish. Irish, Irish Catholic, Irish cultural, Irish everything. Like, I do remember my grandma, who was second generation, so her parents came in from ireland and she was either born there and brought here or she was just born here i can't remember exactly but definitely second generation because she was in the united states but grandma was super catholic but she would also do things to make sure that you know the fairies were appeased and that's a very culturally irish thing right you know like i don't believe in fairies but just in case we're just gonna do put a little salt on the windowsill we're gonna Put a little oil here. We're going to do this there. Um, and uh, so that was part of the influence. My father's side was Russian German. Uh, and, you know, in all cases, like your family's everything or it's nothing, right? That's just the way that you look at that. Uh, and because most of my father's family had passed before I was born or right around the time I was born you know, it really was my, my mother's family that shaped that perspective. So, you know, I don't think this is a story I've ever told, but, you know, it has shaped my perspective on justice in this world for a long time. Uh, and that is when I came out, you know, that sort of idyllic visit your family turned into a, we're going to do an intervention on you and we're going to kind of trick you to come down and visit. uh, And we're all going to behave awkwardly. And all of the things that you thought were okay and normal are not. And no, you can't share anybody's bedroom, you know, for your sleeping bag. So you can sleep in a hallway now uh, because we're all afraid of you. And, you know, I left that sort of weekend intervention fall of my freshman year uh with my family and i never looked back and it was one of my cousins who gave me the heads up and they were like hey man not for nothing but like you think you're going to be dragged to church tomorrow with the family but you're going to be dragged to a medical intervention site for shock therapy conversion therapy that you're going to be expected to check yourself into and i was like well okay so I kind of evaluated how old were you Uh, this would have been freshman year college okay you know so I evaluated my options and after everybody went to bed I like just rolled up my sleeping bag and threw everything in my car and left and then I called them at seven or eight a.m in the morning when I had arrived back in my dorm room and I said I will never speak to you again and I pretty much (laughs) haven't And the only person who came out of that as a bridge builder was my mother. And I have an amazing relationship with her now. Uh, But, you know, that's what it was. I mean, this was the early 90s. This might as well have been, you know, the dawn of time when it came to the modern perceptions of LGBT youth and families and all that stuff. So, like, it is what it was. So that was one.
0: Did you you have any idea that's how they would respond? Like, were, were you like, uh, no this choice. might go badly? Or- I
1: had no choice but to tell them or but to own up to it because one of my cousins had already told them for me uh, because okay. I was getting involved with activist work. And they spotted my name in one of the local papers up in Ithaca where I went to school. So they were like, well, we told the family. And I was like, great, thanks for that, really. you know."
0: And did you hide that all the, all the way through high school?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, I went to a Catholic high school. There's no way. But there were like, oddly enough, like there were six of us, like who I think were friends. And slowly, one by one, everybody came out between freshman year and senior year of college. So we found the right people to hang out with right. in, in high school, right? Like we found yeah. that. Uh, so, so yeah, that was event number one. Uh, event number two was I... Started at my college as a material science major, uh, which was a fundamental mistake, as we all now know, because Tracy and math is just not like a <laughs> happy union. Yeah, material what science.
0: Is, what's material science?
1: Material science is the study of how things like metals and ceramics and other key elements interface together to create new, new uh New sort of compositions of things to accelerate different desired end games. So at the time, people were searching for superconductors at anything, yeah. you know, warmer than absolute zero. Uh, right. People were yeah. looking for new ways of creating transistors. Uh, so that was material science. Uh, that
0: sounds like a lot of engineering. Is-
1: oh, it was. A ton of engineering. A ton. Huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting path.
1: It was. But I mean, remember that the sort of fundamental directive of my life was doctor, lawyer, or engineer. That Um, was what you
0: mean.
1: And I was honestly the first person in my family to go to a college that wasn't a military institution. So like huge amount of pressure. Um, So I started feeling out of that around the same time that this whole crisis erupted uh, with my family uh, so I was navigating two things at once fall freshman year, the family and the fact that Tracy, as you know, I was, was not cut out to be an engineer <laughs> at all. Uh, so I, I, I agree I, with
0: that assessment, by the way.
1: Yeah, <laughs> most people do. So uh, I switched majors to Russian and East European studies, which at the time was a very nascent major at my school. And I studied that for four years. And I got a scholarship to travel to Moscow uh, and Russia in that sort of corridor. And year one was summer of 93, which to contextualize this was the same summer as the hardline coup against Boris Yeltsin. And year two was summer 94, which was the output of that. Uh, and what I was doing was at the time interviewing folks who were then super optimistic LGBT activists because they were like, "Oh, Russia's going to become a democracy. Russia's going to like, you know, modernize, and we have an opportunity here." And you know what we now know in 2021 is none of that came true. And in fact, approval of same-sex relationships in Russia over the past 30 years has gone down. And not up. Uh, and the church has reasserted itself as the dominant cultural force. But at the time, that was not the thinking. Uh, but also at the time, like Russia was falling apart. So, you know, I just like
0: trade machine guns for bubble gum, right? I mean, yeah, like, well,
1: pretty much. I mean, like, I have so many stories from that era, but, you know, the thing that is true is it gave me a front row seat to what it looks like to be a society that is substantially wrestling with democracy and not doing well with it. Um, And the inefficiencies of nation state building as we perceive it in the United States and the outcomes of broken promises as we have outlined them as a country to other countries. And if that all sounds familiar, it's because we're just living through it again right now with Afghanistan. But we made many promises to Russia that we didn't keep. Society was falling apart. If you know anything about how the Soviet economy worked, it was all centralized. So that meant that independent parts of the economy couldn't function without other parts of it on board. And when that collapsed, that meant that there was no production. Uh, hyperinflation kicked in. Like, you could trade a dollar for 10 rubles at the start of the week and a $1 dollar for 100 rubles at the end of the week. People's savings were disappearing. There were riots in the streets, like gunfire, like mob taking control. It was, it was the early indicators of the rise of the authoritarian Russia that we now know were fomenting... Right then and there, uh, and you know why that was such a key moment in my time is because it's it's the moment in time that I reference now when I say there's red alarms going off all over the place in the United States. Uh, the other thing that I don't really talk about much from that era, but is also true, is. Um, When I was in Russia in 94, (laughs) I have a great story about how I kind of got in on a not so legal visa and how I had to get out on a not so legal visa uh, by essentially pretending to cry at the border control and like betting on the fact that this clearly 55 or 60 year old career Soviet like, you know, military woman didn't want to be bothered with like a blubbering American, which worked uh but um no summer 94 was also the summer that i witnessed a murder and couldn't do anything about it uh so you know the mob had asserted itself all over russia and that was sort of the foundation of the oligarchs that we now see was there a big
0: difference between 93 and 94 like when you went back the second year
1: you know it was sort of like the wave crashing and then the crashed wave that's the difference, metaphorically speaking. Like, mm-hmm. people already were like, wait a minute, like George H.W. Bush didn't deliver, you know, a, a knight in white shining armor to us. And Boris Yeltsin's kind of a uneducated alcoholic and corrupt as hell. Um, and we have no control over our lives and our economy anymore. And everybody's poor. And this sucks. Um, you know, so, yeah, that was a day that, I never talk about really anymore, but, you know, I was walking with a friend outside of a Metro stop and there was a guy, old guy in like basically rags on his knees in front of like three guys with a suit, uh, with suits. And I looked over and they were maybe about a hundred meters away from us. So not far, not so far away that I couldn't see what was going on, but far enough away that I couldn't do a damn thing about it. Um, and I looked over right in time to see one of the guys reach down beneath his like belt, pull out a knife that I swear to you is like 12 inches long and just shove it right up through the other guy's neck and into his head. And my friend who was with me saw that too. And I just looked at him and I said, what, what, what do we do? And he's like, we walk away very quickly is what we do. Um, and that was a really difficult and like like that was the moment where I was like, I am never coming to Russia again. And you know just to put a coda on this story, a lot of friends of mine from that era either left the country or disappeared, like literally disappeared. Um, so I don't know what's going on over there anymore. Um, and the irony of it all is my mother really wanted to go to Russia for years and years and years and years. So uh, 2011 rolled around and it was looking okay. And we booked one of those like super safe slow moving American tour things. And I went back to that same place where I saw that guy get murdered, you know, 20, 18 years or however long that was prior. And the whole place had been converted into a brand new children's park. It was kind of weird. I was like, okay. Interesting. So I think that was moment number two. Uh, and I think moment number three happened. Wait, what's the
0: moment there? That's not the mur- I don't I think it was the murder, right? It was,
1: was no, it just it like that. It was just the experience the... of it all. It was uh, just the you experience speak Russian? of it all. Not so well, you know.
0: I think some people are going to want to know if you prefer Russian or Klingon.
1: Uh, <laughs> i i'm just saying i'm,
0: I'm curious <laughs>
1: um you know the thing is is uh i prefer klingon because it's totally fake uh and i have a lot of fun with it and i know the origin of it which was jimmy Doan trying to like fake a language being recorded as a klingon in star trek the motion picture uh and somehow star trek world ran with that really? um uh, yeah and sure. like, but Russian has my heart and it's really funny because now I'm, I'm a real lover of Southern Europe. I love, you know, I love Barcelona. I love Italy. I love Greece. Um, and I try to learn these languages and they come out in a Russian accent or like I will try to learn phrases in like Italian and I'll walk into the store and I'll be like, and the lady <laughs> will just look at me and I'll be like, sorry. I mean, bon you know, like, it's just, it activates the same area of the brain. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, yeah. but oh, that great. whole moment of understanding what it looks like when a society is desperate, that was, yeah. that was a moment.
0: And I, think, when I, I know that we're, oh, we're parked on this for a while, but it's so interesting when you were studying, so you studied this for, you know, three years before three you went years. over. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Did you, when you were studying it, did you see this coming? Like when you were. Yes and
1: no. Um, Because the philosophy at the time was like, everybody kind of saw the Balkans coming a mile away, right? Like the Balkan war, people were like, oh yeah, that's going to be bad. And it's going to be ugly. Now, what nobody foresaw was that some of those countries like Croatia, Slovenia, they're like EU members in great standing now, right? People are like, oh my yeah. God, how'd you do that, right? Yeah. Um, but it's through picking priorities, right? And that's really what the major was about. And so we spent a lot of time saying like, what's the priority here? Are you reforming your economic system? Are you reforming your political system? Are you reforming your culture? You can't do more than one of these things at a time. They kind of have to be linearly sequenced And they have to all be interdependent. And then we would all kind of scratch our heads and be like, man, Russia is really a problem because they're trying to do everything at once. And the Americans are saying, like, we got your back the whole way. And I think, you know, Russia trying to do everything at once and America saying we got your back the whole way, which is a very simplified way of describing this, um, was kind of why Russia is an authoritarian state now. Yeah, right. You know, Looking for a
0: strong man at the end of that
1: yep and and you know putin man he knew how to play that game from start to finish you know so like you know that's the famous cia it's so interesting
0: to think about that because zagreb is like one of like one of my favorite memories was staying in zagreb for a couple of days and i just cannot cannot imagine it as you know the balkan wars but yeah yeah um, so the CIA, you were about oh, to say the CIA, yeah, that that's the CIA that story.
1: Liked. Well, I mean, I, I joke occasionally, but I don't think folks actually know this story that I was recruited for the CIA at the end of my college tenure. And, you know, at the time the whole gays in the military thing was happening. Right. And, uh, hashtag thanks, Bill Clinton. Um, so, uh, except hashtags didn't exist back then. So we were just like, you know, angry. Uh, We didn't have hashtags to take away our anger. We just had anger. Uh, And um, so this guy tried to recruit everybody in our major program, as it turned out. And there were only like 17 of us. So it was kind of evident to all of us what was going on. And he was, to this day, he was like the most nondescript human being I've ever interacted with in my life. Just a very gentle guy in a suit with glasses, white guy, of course. You know, like, that's all I remember. And, what does
0: one say when they are, like, proposing that you be a star? Oh,
1: well, you know, he was kind of, like, around the circle on it. He was like, so
0: um, I mean, did the program know? Like, where, Like, was he part no, of the I, I, I have okay. no idea.
1: I, I really huh? have no idea. But yeah. I know that, like, he was connected to us through somebody. You know? And he was like, oh, I really want to talk to you. And like, what do you want to do next? And I was like, well, hell if I know. Um, And uh, (laughs) yeah, he's like, do you like to travel? I'm like, I do. He's like, would you like to to listen in
0: on other people's conversation?
1: (laughs) You know? I mean, the, the questions he was asking were so like broad. You know, he was like, do do you like to, uh, would you like to continue studying Russian? And I was like, yeah, maybe like, and and that was his hook. And he was like, well, you know, what if you came and worked for us and we we put you through the government intensive Russian program. And I was like, government intensive Russian, which by the way, the American government has all of these language intensives. So like, you know, Uh, and I was like, interesting. And he's like, you'll travel and you know, we're gonna you'll learn how to sort of fire a gun and and I was like, I, I just how do you out, feel
0: about high speed chases? <laughs> I'm
1: like, you know, part of me at the time was like, does it come with an Aston Martin? Um, and and part of me was like, I, I, I kept looking at the guy and, and after about 10 minutes of him describing this, I was like, Are you a three-letter agency? Are you FBI or CIA? And he was like, well, you know, we are definitely part of the government. Yes. And I was like, your people don't take people like me because I was very, very openly queer at that point. And he was like, well, you know, we we do make certain exceptions for high profile and talented candidates who have the ability to exercise discretion over their lifestyle, or or some such answer like that. And I yeah, was like,
0: I, I think of you as a really discreet person.
1: I am. I'm totally discreet, man. You have no idea the Unabomber factory that's in my house, right? <laughs> like, yeah, there you go. So I I I kind of looked at him and I said, "This is over." I was like this is done i am not being an agent of the united states government in enforcing its little sort of democracy games thank you very much i'm leaving and i picked up and left um but it turns out two people from our program did take him up on that offer i presume they went out to the farm and like we never heard from them again like none of us ever heard from them again and we're like oh okay well there you go that's that's what you do when you join the cia i guess so, yeah,
0: that is so, so
1: interesting. So the last key event in my life, I think I'm going to change from what we were talking about right before we hit the record button, because I realized that the answer that I gave you really wasn't a key event. It was just something stupid and obvious I should have realized all along. Um, but, uh, you know, what I will say is I, I well, had reason.
0: I want to know what you should have realized
1: all along. Uh, just you know, business you know I'm gonna, I'm gonna crib Mark Benihoff here and say the, the business of doing business in this world is to grow business. Uh, and, and I'll just leave it there, you know, uh, but anywho. Uh, and I am really intentional when I say is to grow business. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the, the third thing that I had real opportunity to just revisit recently, uh, was actually being poor like being being broke ass mother effing poor uh, see I'm trying not to cuss the kids tell me I cuss too much so there you go uh, <laughs> uh, and that happened twice in my life so you know it happened early in my childhood my father died when I was 12 and The sequence of events that set off was interesting because we were very comfortably middle-class and then we weren't. Uh, And within six months, it was like pensions, social security, uh, you know, food bank stuff, you name it. Like it was all there, handouts from the family. And, you know, I, I think I don't really have a context for you know, anything other than that in my life. And, you know, it leaves a person and it leaves me with like that sense of like, when are the resources gonna disappear Uh, all the time? Um, So, you know, that happened early on in my life. Uh, And I've, again, never told this whole story. I only allude to it. My first job because of that was picking strawberries in the field with the migrant laborers in New Hampshire. In the blazing heat of summer. And because I needed to make money, you know, I parlayed that into doing yard work for the rich people in town for th- several years from like 12 to 15. Uh, it's probably safe to say this in 90, uh, not in 90, uh, in, in 2021, but, you know, I got a real job at a bank when I was 15 by telling the bank I was 16. Uh, And I did teller work. And there's a lot connected to that. Like my mom got her associate's degree. She got a job at a bank. And, you know, I was so, so damn grateful to have that job. And everybody was like, this job, all you do is work this job. I'm like, well, this job is paying for stuff. Uh,
0: (laughs) Was it, was, so you were 15 in high school. Was this, like, was your family in a situation where, this wasn't your own spending money in lieu of allowance, but this was like, you know, groceries and, you know, it wasn't that bad. I will say it wasn't
1: that bad. I had friends who were hard up worse whose parents were like subsistence hunters, for example. Right. And it was like, well, geez, if dad didn't bag a deer, we didn't eat. Right. So like we weren't there. So this was in lieu of anything else. This was like, either I have, spending money or i don't yeah um right. and i would occasionally buy stuff for the house but that was just what it was yeah. right so it didn't get cool so-
0: clothes and lunchables do you remember those
1: yeah you God. know if
0: you, then then it was the bank money right
1: yeah but, and those were horrible when they came out and they remained horrible uh but super for, popular i i don't know yeah. why we yeah, like horrible either, things as a country that are super popular i'm like milk crate challenge comes to mind yeah yes good good analogy there uh nevertheless like i worked most of my friends in town now remember my town was undergoing this amazing transformation from like rural per kids to like Mm. young people who were like the children of these like white collar workers that the state of new hampshire imported right and you could argue so strong say, us
0: versus them and strong a us versus bomb.
1: them strong right. like values clash but right. you could arguably we say like that was the beginning of purple state new hampshire right there interesting yeah um wow. and you know so you know i have other stories from working as a child for the rich folks like the alcoholic grandfather who's like entertained himself by drinking and watching me work which i always thought was super creepy oh yeah he paid me my best wages too like he paid me 25 bucks a day and that was like a deal for six hours of work um but i remember when i got that job because my mom was like after a few months she was like what do you think of the job and i was like it's indoors and it's air conditioned like that was the extent to which yep. I had thought about it. And, right. and all of my coworkers were like, hey, do you want to go outside for lunch? And I was like, no, thank you. I'll eat <laughs> I eat lunch- years outside. Yeah, I'll <laughs> yeah. eat lunch in here. Right. In the kitchen where it's air conditioned. Uh, and very occasionally I had access to the giant safe below and I would eat lunch down there because it was even cooler. Uh, and that was, was it. Do you think
0: your family, if, you, if your father hadn't died, uh would you have worked or you i don't do know because he was off?
1: making good money for what he was doing back in the era sure. well did your uh, siblings
0: you had siblings are
1: like nope, five years old only right? child they didn't work. those are my cousins who oh. were five years old oh yeah. got it yeah, okay. yeah 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 uh but you know i don't know i might have just turned out to have been like an entitled asshole kid you know <laughs> i might have but yeah. these experiences are what gave me my perspective of what it means for justice and equity and long-term investment in communities and in the world. And what I didn't have in rural New Hampshire that I got later was the language of it around race, you know, around gender, around ethnicity, around class and around all the things that now sort of people kind of take for granted as existing language. That was all being created in the time that I was growing up in the nineties in college and thereafter, but, you know and it was obviously built on a lot of work. So I'm not saying that it came out of nowhere. It built on a lot of work, but Mm -hmm. you know I just didn't have the language for that experience. And I learned the language for that experience through the people I met and the encounters I had because that was time one when I was poor Time too when I was poor was when I moved from New York to San Francisco, um, largely just to get away from the East Coast entirely. Like I was like, I, I, I'm done. Like I, I broke with my family substantially. At that time in my life, my relationship with my mother was still very rocky. Uh, and I, I was like, I'm done, I'm leaving. Uh, but because of who I am and how I present myself, I was having trouble landing jobs, so like the best I could get was like assistant manager at a salon, you know, or like the job that I really like, you know, woo, assistant manager at, you know, a food company. Uh, so, you know, San Francisco was the landing zone for all of us who have ever felt excluded from the world, where we tried to create a different inclusive community and, you know, the only problem was for me in that era, which would have been like 99 to 2001, like my career kind of just stalled out. There was no concept of career, you know, for me. Um, well, if you study you Russian,
0: know. then don't go there.
1: Right. Like what, I what studied do you do? Russian, didn't go there. I worked yeah. for a private foundation that was eventually going to close its doors in New York. Um, You know, so like I had started working in nonprofit stuff, but I I underestimated the amount of systemic barriers that were present to my own fiscal success in that era. Um, And, you know, so consequently, it was like paying rent or eating were the choices sometimes, not doing both at the same time and that gives a person a perspective on some of the excesses of what would become the first and second dot com booms in San Francisco you know later on where it's like you see friends you know doing whatever and you're looking at like a trash bin saying that pizza doesn't look touched you know like that's that's the dichotomy of the life i lived back then uh, and it really wasn't until i re kind of Joined uh, a foundation again in 2001, one week before September 11. Like, holy cow. Uh, That was a trip in itself, uh, being a new staff member right around that time. But it wasn't until that happened that my nonprofit career kind of re elevated again. Um, And I think in retrospect, it was kind of pure dumb luck, you know, like people don't always get lucky that's that's the perspective i've had in my life and i think you know what i say a lot to people is my perspective on things is is frequently different from other people's perspective i think largely because of the fact that i've had to learn to play the long game in my world in a way where like true story my ex and i Uh, had a house in Oakland for a few years, about 10 or 15 years ago. And there was this giant brick barbecue that I. it was built clearly in the 20s when the house was built and it was falling apart and it was horrible. And I just wanted to get rid of it. And everybody was like, you know, well then pay somebody to haul it off. And I was like, fuck that. I'm going to get this thing with a sledgehammer. I am going to take tiny pieces of it And I'm going to hide it in my trash as I'm emptying my trash once a week with the city of Oakland. And through the course of like six months, it will go away. And it did. It took eight months, but (laughs) I I nailed that thing with a sledgehammer, broke it into tiny bits, hid those bits in the trash that the city of Oakland had to pick up and it went away. But I, I think in ways that are like, what if we started doing these small things now and made big, huge things later rather than like, what's the instant reward and gratification? Because I'm not used to instant reward and gratification. Yep. Right? You know, I'm just not. And that's OK. So there you go. I
0: wonder if that's one of the reasons you and I connect is because I, have a, I also, well, I don't know if it's also, I have a distrust of things. I have a distrust. That things can be fixed quickly. Yeah, it's it's not my lived experience, and nope. um, you know, two chapters later, that's the problem. With you know, the quick fix is the problem. Um, so I, I think that that's interesting. I think it that's is. Interesting.
1: I mean, it also informs how I play, like Settlers of Catan. So, you know,
0: <laughs> how do you, what what is your going strategy for settlers,
1: or uh, for settlers? Uh, first of all, we're no longer helping the kids because, wow, we just got trounced by the, by the youngest <laughs> very recently. Uh, and secondly, the, the going strategy now is, is um, I try for disconnected ecosystems of highly, uh, highly useful materials. So when I set up my pieces, I don't care so much if I'm going for like longest road anymore, because what I'm trying to do is play a long-term resourcing game.
0: Yeah. Portfolio. Um, You're trying, yeah. To, trying to get a portfolio. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. And it doesn't matter yeah. if those two things never connect and they're on yeah. either side of the board. Right. Uh, but the other thing that I try to do when I go for longest road is I see if I can take a coastal route because most people start by trying to build inside. And I'm yep. like, no, oh, screw that. I'm going to build on the coast. You'll I'm never make like, it. You know, yeah. I made it once, it was amazing, <laughs> but yes, it's nice. hard to do if you're gonna do that. No, no, I mean, coast. if you go
0: interior, you'll never- Oh yeah, it. if like, you go interior, it's like going into the Hunger More days, than two you know. players, like oh, don't, no, don't
1: even try. No, no, don't even try. But yeah, so it's like longest road goes coastal and you hope nobody notices by the time it's built, you know? So yeah. But I mean, um, yeah, so, you know, that that's, that's the formative moments in my life that, I've always brought to what I want to do in this world. You know, I used to say to many people, I'm not here to make money for you. I'm here to serve nonprofits so that they can help people like me get out of the lives that they're living, right? And it's hard when we work in a world of IT that demands a six-month horizon on return on investment when I go into jobs that are only about sales or co-selling. And it's like, it sets up this cognitive dissonance that I can't live with because I find the means by which much of that is executed to be grossly inapplied to what is actually necessary. You know, call me a dreamer. Maybe I've stopped dreaming. Maybe that's the problem. I don't know.
0: No, I don't think you have. Um I mean it's not I'm not being dismissive on that. I'm I'm saying like you and I work (laughs) and talk with each other. Like I know I know that I think you're I think you're better at predicting which dreams are possible or not. Um and I think you're better about not in the time I've known you, I feel like you've honed your sense of um what doesn't matter. And which which things do? But you yeah. pay more attention to world events and large meta pieces. You pay way more attention to those than anybody I've ever met. Um, and I think that that's interesting. Okay, if you were not,
1: if you were not where you are today, where would you be? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's a good question. One of three places.
0: And would you prefer to be there?
1: <laughs> okay, uh, I mean the honest answer is, if I were not where I were right now. Uh, I would be homeless. I would not prefer to be homeless, but that is generally one outcome for folks that have lived the kind of life that I've lived. Uh, And, you know, that's okay. Uh, I think if I weren't doing everything I was doing right now, I, I was, I say this a lot, and that is I was a classically trained researcher and writer, and I love to write. I think words are less Uh, they're less science and, you know, much more art and every word has its own flavor and nuance to communications. And it dismays me that as a society, we've become less attenuated to those nuances over time. Uh, But at the same time, like I love writing. I love writing. I love it so much. Like that I can barely get ideas out sometimes and other times I'll stay up all night writing something. So I think I would be a writer. And that would be another possibility. And, and if I weren't doing what I was doing at all right now, there's a, also an equal likelihood that I might go into politics or might have gone into politics. Um, because up until this year, I sincerely believed that the democratic process was the way to change America. I don't believe that anymore. And that's an outcome of the Trump administration and the events of January 6. I think now as a country we're on a dangerously anti-democratic path and no amount of rabble-rousing is going to change that. So I've shifted my focus to things that are nice and meaningful like you know Livermore Pride is nice. Uh, if I can get involved in our city's planning commission, it's meaningful because it'd be nice to have bike lanes and think about what it could mean to have like mixed income communities and that sort of stuff. But, you know, I, those are three possible destinations of where I might be. Interesting.
0: Uh, we've known each other since, I think we've known each other for seven years.
1: Yeah. Seven or eight years. Yep.
0: You are, there's absolutely no question you're happier than I've ever known you to be um, in in the last uh, two years, so yeah, um so i'm I'm, yeah, I think that that's it's interesting to listen to what else, like where else you would be, especially um, especially homeless because I think um, you know, when you came out, that was a really vulnerable state, like you like became an orphan essentially at that point. And a, I, I mean, a lot of the nomadic youth, you know, that hang out on Hayton, Ashbury and, yep. you know, travel, travel the coasts, um, you know, all, a lot, a high percentage of those are out and um, mm-hmm. abandoned by their family. So um, that is really, even really glad with, that you are.
1: Yeah. Even with, Some very good education credentials. That is absolutely true that that could have been my trajectory. Yeah. You know,
0: I mean, if you couldn't have handled the emotional stress of that and what was going on in university and dropped out, you know, um, which
1: I almost did, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I almost did. I was like, I can't take this. I'm going to just quit college. Uh, Funny story Uh, my neighbor growing up, related to college, even. You know, he said to me once, he was like, You will go to school because he was a Marine. Uh, he was like, You will go to school. Uh, and he landed at Iwo Jima legit for real in World War II. Whoa. Yeah. And he, like, because the bank that I was working at offered me a path to becoming a loan officer out of high school. And that looked really attractive. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and he sat me down and, like, he was scary. Uh, but he was like, you will go to school. I did not land at Iwo Jima and watch my friends die so that you could become a fucking loan officer is literally what he said to me. And I was like, okay, Mr. Stillman, whatever you say, Mr. Stillman, thank you so much. But it's true. Uh, and I mean, that's you pretty know.
0: interesting that a neighbor would have that much interest in a youth living um, on their street. That's- he
1: kind of stepped in when my dad died, right? Because dad died when I was 12. So he kind of showed up there. You know? That's
0: amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Amazing. So that's just a little bit about me where I think we're at time, but I don't know if that motivates anybody to understand why I'm doing this Yeah. We didn't even because, get to the lightning
0: round and we didn't even know, get to hear about you becoming a a priestess like nobody's a priestess anymore oh so, yeah that's a, uh, but I've,
1: I've talked about that a lot one though like I, yeah, you know I, yeah. I i've talked about that a lot and i think all right well let's do the lightning is, round. okay here we go you know important um, all right
0: uh if you had one do over would you take it or no and what is it
1: no okay. i
0: wouldn't okay what makes you happy serenity what makes you sad Anguish. That is what sad is. You can't just pick that. You have to like. Okay. Like what? Never mind. Well, okay. Out.
1: So what I said to somebody recently was, there is a lot of anguish when systems fall apart, right? And yeah. America is a system that, by virtue of what I see, is not holding itself together well. Afghanistan is falling apart. Like it is. There is so much anguish in knowing who you are in those places of absolute torment in the world and knowing there's not a damn thing you can do to get out of it no matter how hard you try because it's either bureaucratic or systemic or discriminatory or based on your past or based on your future or somebody else's evaluation of you. Like the hurdles are very high and the cracks are very wide, but you have to have lived through it to understand what a person literally feels in those moments and for a lot of people in my opinion it's anguish because there's nothing else to do it's 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 purgatorial right like the the definition of purgatory is being close enough to god to know what you're missing right
0: interesting i didn't know that
1: i mean i think that's kind of like the concept there right I think, you either go I to know. heaven I mean, and you get your eternal reward or whatever everybody conceptualizes of, or you go to hell and you're eternally damned, but there's, there's this purgatory structure in some faiths, And it's like close enough to know what you're missing and far enough to miss it. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people in our society get trapped there and it does a number on self-esteem and sense of accomplishment and sense of future and sense of hope and possibility.
0: i i will allow anguish
1: you have convinced me (laughs) i try the kids love it when Uh, i lecture them favorite food favorite food is lobster really really oh all right followed by like a good filet mignon
0: okay all right and turf Uh, amen favorite color
1: green favorite movie oh that's tough uh i have like genres like everything from like boogie nights to lord of the rings so i don't think i can claim a favorite i have favorite genres you know
0: all right i'll allow that too, even though that's not a real (laughs) answer uh thank you so much as always for um being my friend which has been uh you know your your life experience shaped who you are, and and is therefore shaped parts of who I am. And there are a lot of parts for you that I'm not grateful for because they're really, um, really horrible. Uh, but who you are because of them uh, is a delight and a joy for many of us. Aww, and uh, it's it. it's really it's it's really great to actually give space to that history and space to those stories. So. Thanks for being your authentic self.
1: Yeah, thanks for being a friend and a mentor and a colleague, a coworker, a boss, family. Like, you and I have had a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, I yeah, am so yeah. interviewing you, by the way, now. It's like, <laughs> this was profoundly like disturbing. So thank oh, you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I,
0: my life is so boring compared to yours. It's like, uh, but, uh,
1: yeah, no, well, it'll be fun. Well, it, it'll be fun. Cool. All right, I'm Tim Lockie. I'm Tracy Kronczak, and you've been listening to Why It Matters.
0: Why It Matters is a thought leadership project of Now It Matters, a strategic services firm offering advising and guiding to nonprofit and social impact organizations.
1: If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, check out our playlists, and visit us at nowitmatters.com to learn more about us.